All right, Southside will meet me in Romans chapter 12 as we continue to look for God's vision for the community of Christ, the church. Romans 12 has been and will continue to show us what it means to live the Christian life together, what it means to be transformed by the renewal of the mind and resist conformity to the world. And we need to hear it. We need to hear it. And it is the church corporately. By being American, by nature, we are individualists. But we were made for community. Which is why one of our core values here at Southside is authentic community. Individualism, isolation, independence, though it is the air we breathe, it is not God's design for human flourishing. And Romans 12 shows us that. And Romans 12, unlike so much of what we've seen in Romans, is actually really easy to understand, but it's really hard to apply. And I will remind us every week that these commands flow out of the gospel. Romans 1 to 11 comes before Romans 12 on purpose. We see the grace of the gospel, what God's done for us, then what we are to do for him. So because of grace, we're called to live this kind of life. Romans 1 to 11, indicative, what God has done in Christ. Romans 12, 1, therefore, Romans 12, 2 and following, what we're supposed to do. That foundation is so important because we'll fizzle out if we think we have to keep these commands in order to merit God's love. And so the order is important. We have God's love by faith in Jesus Christ, not by doing, not by works, not by our performance, but by believing. And because of that, then we're called to live this life. Therefore, we commit our lives to him. The foundation of the grace of God is so vital to true obedience. Here's how one pastor put it. He said that grace gets more doing done than doing does. <laughs> so grace is actually the fuel, the motivation, the foundation for everything we're seeing in these verses. Last week, we looked at Romans 12, 9 to 11, and seven marks of the community of Christ, genuine love, a hatred of evil, loving the good, brotherly love, a culture of honor, zeal for God's glory, and service. This morning, we're going to look at five more marks from just two verses. We'll look at joyful hope, patience and tribulation, prayer, generosity, and hospitality from Romans chapter 12, 12 and 13. So let's read those verses. Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. So first mark right here is joyful hope. He says there in verse 12, rejoice in hope. Rejoice. Be filled with joy. God will often command us to rejoice, right? Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord. Always, again, I will say rejoice. God cares about our joy so much that he demands it. Toward the end of Deuteronomy, we have all these blessings of the covenant. If Israel kept the covenant, even more curses of the covenant. And I want to read a couple of verses. Listen to Deuteronomy 28, verse 47. He says, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, nakedness, lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he's destroyed you. If you read those curses of the covenant, they're really, really serious. But notice what he says here. He doesn't say because you did not serve the Lord. He says because you didn't serve the Lord with gladness, with joy. God cares about our emotions. 
And as Christians, we have every reason to be the happiest people on earth, the most joyful people on earth. David Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, unhappy Christians are, to say the least, a poor recommendation for the Christian faith. And there can be little doubt but that the exuberant joy of the early Christians was one of the potent, powerful factors in the spread of Christianity. Exuberant joy. So we ought to be those who rejoice. But notice, that's not all this verse says. It says rejoice in hope. And remember, for us, hope is not just wishful thinking. Hope is not, you know, I hope the Cowboys win, or maybe better now, I hope the Cowboys play again. No, it's not wishful thinking. It is a confidence, expectation that the Lord will return and he will make all things right. Hope is a confident expectation because it's based upon God. It's based upon his promises. As such, they can be counted on. And most specifically, hope is based upon the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is confident expectation. And we've already seen a good bit about hope in Romans. Look back just a few chapters at Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Maybe the best chapter on hope in Romans, maybe the best chapter in hope on the whole Bible is Romans chapter 8 where we see what we can hope for in verse 18. 818, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What's our hope? It's right here. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Resurrection is our hope. For in this hope, we were saved. And the hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Friends, we have every reason to be filled with hope, to be hopeful. So we can rejoice in hope. And how does hope fuel our joy? Well, think about it. Hope is future oriented, isn't it? By definition, hope is about the future which tells us that the foundation of our joy, the foundation of our rejoicing is not in the here and now. It doesn't say rejoice in the present in this verse. It says rejoice in hope. Rejoice in what you have stored up for you as a believer in Jesus Christ in the future, eternity, life with King Jesus on a new heavens and new earth. See, friends, if you wrap all of your joy up with the present, it will evade you. You will lose it. Moth and rust destroy. Thieves break in and steal. 
Listen to my man, J.C. Ryle. To be truly happy, a man must have sources of gladness which are not dependent on anything in this world. There's nothing upon earth which is not stamped with the mark of instability and uncertainty. We know that especially now, don't we? Economies will tank. Jobs will cease. And the reason Christians can rejoice at all times is because our joy is not found in current circumstances. Those will change. Those will come and go. Those are shifting sand. And don't get me wrong, we should enjoy so much of God's good gifts. It's not that we should not rejoice in the present at all. We're not monks. We're not ascetics. We believe creation is good and every gift is from God. First Timothy 4, everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. So I'm not saying we should never find joy in the present. We should, but ultimately, if our joy and our rejoicing is wrapped up in the present, we will end up disappointed and discontent. And you know, because of this, because of our current circumstances, we have a real witnessing opportunity with our friends, our unbelieving neighbors. Because if people have put their joy in their circumstances, most of those are being or have been stripped away. In the midst of all this, God is removing things. God is tearing down idols. Showing their bankruptcy, as we read in Psalm 115. So we can come in, we can speak a word of hope. And maybe you're here, maybe that's you. Maybe you're watching and you're not a Christian. I'm glad you're watching. Maybe you're confused. Maybe you're despairing. You've lost hope. Friend, listen to the words of an old hymn. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There's power enough in heaven to cure a sin-sick soul. You can trust in Christ. He will forgive you of your sins. He will take care of your greatest problem, which is your guilt. He can become your all. He will give you meaning and purpose. So, friend, build your life on the rock. All other foundations are sinking sand, but Jesus Christ is the rock that will see us through the storm. The church rejoices in hope. That's number one. Number two, we are patient in tribulation. Again at verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Patience is not a virtue in our microwave society, is it? And even us, we don't like it. We don't like to wait. Well, why not? Because at the end of the day, we're selfish, right? We want our own little kingdoms and queendoms. We want restaurants that only wait on us. We want drive-throughs that only exist for our car. We want customer service that is exclusively concerned with our present need. We want nice new highways, zero traffic. We want no potholes. We want no other cars. We want our stuff two days after we push the order button. Forget waiting in line, man. I'm just going to do mobile order. I'm going to walk past all you suckers. We want it right away. We want it our way. That's who we are. But we're called to be patient, and Christians are patient because Christians have the Spirit, and the Spirit produces patience. The fruit of the Spirit is patience. He works in us, and he makes us a more patient people. And we can be patient in tribulation. When things are going terribly, we as believers have the resources to be patient through it. Why? How? Because of the Christian worldview, because of the truth, what God's word tells us. I want to mention just four doctrines that help us be patient in tribulation. Number one, eschatology, the study of the end times. 
the last things. See, as Christians, we have the long view, right? Hope and patience go together. Just like we can rejoice in hope, we can be patient in tribulation because we know the end of the story. The story doesn't end. We know where history's headed. God has a plan, and as we just saw in Romans 8, it ends with God coming and making all things right. He will remove the curse. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Today may be rough, but tomorrow is around the corner. And on the scale of eternity, we've got to remind ourselves, today, even our entire life, is just a blip on the radar. So eschatology helps us. Number two, the doctrine of providence. Our God is sovereign. He is in control. He is the one who ordains the end from the beginning. Ephesians 1.11, God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Nothing comes our way without the kind and wise permission of our God. We know God's on the throne so we can be patient. We can endure. You ever think about the fact that when we whine and when we complain, we're really denying the doctrine of providence. When we complain about circumstances, we're complaining about providence. We're really saying, we know better than God. When we complain and whine and bellyache, what we're saying is, God, move over. Make room for me on that throne. Clearly, you don't know what you're doing. Let me speed things along for you. No, 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 friends. We are patient because we believe in a sovereign God, providence. The third doctrine that helps us is theology proper. That is the study of God. Who is he? What's his nature? Well, he's good. We know that. He's revealed himself through his acts. He's told us about his nature. He's shown himself most fully in the cross. We can trust him. He loves us. He is good. He is wise. And then fourth, the doctrine of sanctification. The process of us being changed, of us being made holy. In that banner verse, I hope you know Romans 8, 28 and 29, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, here it is, to be conformed to the image of his son. God's at work, providentially, working out all things. What's the end goal for his people, those called, those who love him? That we would be conformed to Jesus. And so we can be patient in tribulation because we know that whatever's our way, whatever tribulation is, God has good purposes. What is the good? To make us holy. Make us like Jesus. It's just what we saw in Romans chapter 5. We can rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character hope. And James agrees. Chapter 1 verse 2, count it joy when you meet trials because they test our faith and they produce steadfastness. It strengthens us. Peter agrees. 1 Peter 1, we're grieved by various trials so that our faith may be tested and shown to be genuine. Though we don't like it, Biblically, there's just no getting around the fact that the secret sauce of sanctification is suffering. So don't waste your pandemic, church. What is God showing you? What weaknesses is he showing in your character? And then are you getting to work on them? You should be a more patient person after this is all said and done. So four doctrines, more could be said, that help us be patient in tribulation. What we're doing here is Romans chapter 12, verse 1, right? We are renewing our mind. We are being transformed. These truths, many more, they help us to be patient in tribulation. Again, we have a witnessing opportunity. I mean, what does a non-believer do with trials? There really is no silver lining for them. There's no purpose. There's no end goal out of it. It's just 
they are just pure hindrance, right? Just chance. Chance random, it just went bad for you. You just drew the short straw of the impersonal universe. Well, Christians are entirely different on how we can handle tribulations. Christians can wait well. We can be patient in tribulation. And man, this is such a good word for us currently, isn't it? This is a word from God for us. Be patient in tribulation. This too shall soon pass. Don't go crazy. People act like it's the end of the world. But listen, even if it were the end of the world, how should we act? God has a word for us. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. How shall we act? Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. The end of all things is at hand. How should we act? Well, with self-control and prayer, loving one another, showing hospitality, using our gifts to build up the church. Kind of sounds like Romans 12, doesn't it? Third mark of the church is prayer. Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer constant faithful in prayer persistent in prayer now it's really easy to make christians feel guilty about their prayer life sometimes that guilt is merited though isn't it but here as believers we want to constantly be growing in our prayer life first thessalonians 5 pray without ceasing all throughout the day are you praying you should be pray regularly constantly as brother lawrence put it practice the presence of god are you mindful of him all throughout your day. When an opportunity arises, take it to God in prayer. When a need becomes apparent, take it to God in prayer. Prayers don't have to be long. In fact, Jesus discourages that in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't be like the Pharisees, he says. They heap up many words in order to be heard. Don't be like that, no. Prayers don't have to be long. They just need to be frequent. Frequent. They need to be regular. Charles Spurgeon said he rarely prayed more than five minutes, but he hardly let five minutes go by without praying. Use the Bible as an aid to prayer. Pray the Bible. Turn its phrases into prayers. It will focus your attention. It will ensure you're praying the will of God. Can't go wrong when you're praying his own word. We want to pray his will, not our will. Again, J.C. Ryle, tell me what a man's prayers are, and I'll soon tell you the state of his soul. And these are all tied together, right? Because it's only through prayer that we can remain hopeful. Only through prayer can we endure hope leads to endurance endurance requires prayer patience requires prayer without prayer we're in trouble we will not endure falling away backsliding always begins with a lack of prayer so are you constant in prayer we should be these verses really should just become pandemic mantras for us what should Christians do during a pandemic? Romans 12, verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. But that's not all. He mentions two more marks of the church, or way we could put it with 12, 9 being the heading, two more ways to show genuine love. So the fourth mark is generosity. Look at Romans 12, verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints. This is one of our core values as a church. We give sacrificially. 
We are a generous people. Share with God's people who are in need. This is actually the same verb form of koinonia, the word we think about as fellowship. Listen to Acts chapter 2, this picture of the first Christians, the early church. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayer. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were sharing. They were contributing to the needs. Verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They contributed whatever was needed. Was it food? Was it clothing? Was it shelter? Friends, if you need some help, let us know. Let the church be the church. And I'm so encouraged by your continued generosity here at Southside. You know, not gathering, not being able to come together and really receiving no religious goods is a good test of faith. We talk a lot about not wanting to be consumers. We don't want to be a church of consumers. We want to be a church of contributors, not an audience, but an army. And this is really a good way to test that. Consumer Christians, which Abilene is filled with, they'll be tested, right? Because then they will need to give without getting anything. Not being able to gather will show whether we are actually consumers or worshipers. Worshipers are generous. You know, we read this week, if you're reading F2.6, we read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And I'm always struck by 2 Corinthians chapter 9 of how generosity is tied to our confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. Let me read 2 Corinthians 9 verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God God receives praise when the church meets needs right by their approval of this service they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them all and for all others. Part of our submission, of our confession of the gospel, is generosity. Verse 14, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gifts. Generous. And then the fifth mark is hospitality. Look again at Romans 12, 12 and verse 13. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Pursue hospitality. Seek to show it. Practice it. Well, what's hospitality? Last week we talked about Philadelphia, love of brother. This week we have Philozenia, love of the stranger. It's the welcoming and fellowshipping with believers and non-believers with a goal of them seeing Christ more clearly it's not just hanging out it's intentional hanging out it's welcoming it's creating a space for others it's listening and paying attention and providing and this was really important here in the church in Rome there were no holiday inns there were no Airbnbs and so traveling Christians needed help and hospitality today is really a lost art now it's obviously impossible to be too hospitable right now but even before this in America years ago there was a sociology book called Bowling Alone put out by a guy named Robert Putnam, and he showed that at the time of writing, there was a 33% decrease 
in families eating together, which is tied then to a 45% decline in having friends over. We just go home and we hit our little garage button and we slide in, we close in, and we don't even know our neighbors, much less have them over anymore. But here, the Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, says Christians should pursue it. And we welcome others because God has welcomed us. Even way back in Deuteronomy 10, listen to the way God commanded his people. Deuteronomy 10, 19, love the sojourner, that's the stranger, therefore, why? For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Remember, what God has done is the foundation. The gospel is the foundation for all that we're called to do. In fact, if you look over the next page, chapter 15 of Romans, verse 7, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. As God has been to us, so you go and be to others. 1 Peter 4, 9, just read it. Show hospitality to one another. And he says, without grumbling, unbegrudgingly. I think that's there because some of us are tempted to do it with grumbling. Some of us aren't naturally inclined. Some of us will love it. Some of us will not like it. So he says, show it and do so without grumbling. Why would we grumble? Well, because it's hard, right? Our agenda will be interrupted we don't want that, right? We're curved in on self. We want our kingdom and queendom. But hospitality can be hard. There will be dirty floors. There will be spilled drinks. There will be lots to clean up. There will be difficult people. You may have to do a little bit of picking up beforehand. But it's really important to know we're not talking about Southern hospitality. We're not talking about entertaining others. How's this different? Well, the focus of entertaining others is to impress others sometimes. The focus of hospitality is serving others. And you can serve one another with paper plates and soup. And Jesus was a great example of hospitality, specifically with food. He often did ministry at a table. So much of his, so much of his ministry was that. He was eating and drinking so much that his enemies accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. Let me ask you a question. Why did the Son of Man come? There are actually three verses in the New Testament that start that way. Three sentences. The Son of Man came. I wonder if you can fill them in. Go ahead. Take a guess. Can you get any of them? Son of Man came to. Give you a hint. One's Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's one of the purpose statements of the coming of Jesus. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Let me read the third one. The third one's in Luke chapter 7, verse 34. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. He came and he ate and he drank. Jesus was constantly eating with people. And Luke tends to highlight that so much so that one commentator of Luke says this, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. In Luke chapter 5, he eats with tax collectors and sinners at Levi's house. In Luke chapter 7, he eats at Simon's house. In Luke chapter 9, he feeds the 5,000. In Luke 10, he eats at Martha and Mary's house. In Luke 11, he condemns the Pharisees at a meal. Luke 14, he tells people to invite the poor to a meal while he was eating a meal. Luke chapter 19, Jesus invites himself to the house of Zacchaeus. I love this one. The son of man, we know he has nowhere to lay his head. He's homeless. 
he hears a rumor, hey, Zacchaeus, you're a chief tax collector. You're loaded. I'm coming to your house today. You probably have some food. I'm going to come over. If you have some water, I can turn it into Welch's grape juice. And then Luke 24, what does he do after he's resurrected? He asks, and I quote, the resurrected Jesus, have you anything here to eat? End quote. (laughs) And they broil some fish. And here's what it says. He took it and he ate it before them. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Up from the grave, he arose. Fish tacos. (laughs) Food matters. Food matters to God. It seems as if the spirit is heavy with good people around good food. Lives shared, companionship formed. In fact, that word comes from kum, together, and panis, bread, companionship. So pursue hospitality. Have people over when you can. Come up with cheap or easy recipes. Again, we're not talking about impressing or entertaining. We're talking about serving. Even right now, make a list of potential people you can have over. When we return to the normal, Invite people over regularly. Get lunches together. Get coffees. One of the things that would be really neat is to have something, you know, some crockpot meal or something on a Sunday and meet someone. Say, hey, you want to come over for lunch? And just be ready. You got a stack of paper plates and you got some soup, paper bowls, whatever it is. When we get back together, show love to the stranger. It's going to be really good to see one another and we need to do that. But we also need to find that unfamiliar face. Get to know them. Seek to show hospitality. So five marks of the church. We can rejoice and hope because our joy is not ultimately bound up with the here and now, but in the there and then. We can be patient in tribulation because our hope is in the resurrection when God will make all things right. We are to be constant in prayer. We are to be a generous people. We are to pursue hospitality. May God give us the grace to increasingly become just such a community. Let's pray to that end. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its challenge. Thank you for the gospel. We have all failed in many ways. Thankful that we can lean on all the truths that we've seen in Romans 1 to 11, that though we are ungodly, Romans chapter 4, you have declared us in the right. And it's because of that basis that we have motivation to go and seek to obey you in all these various ways, to present our whole selves down at your sacrifice, saying, here I am, Lord, use me. And Lord, I pray for Southside that we would continue to be conformed to the image of Jesus corporately, that we would continue to bear these marks, increase them in us as we wait. And Lord, we look forward to the day that we can get back to the norm. We continue to pray that that day would come soon. And Lord, that we would come back with a vengeance for your glory, with zeal and energy recalibrate us, remind us of what ultimately matters, Lord, that we might come back stronger. We pray it for the sake of King Jesus, our Savior. Amen.